You're listening to the one of us.net podcast network. Time it is. It's time for a digital noise. Sound of fanfare. <sighs> USA, USA. You. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel that. No, no, I'm like, I can't do that right now. I know. I don't. I don't feel so proud. Uh, but we are the show that reviews all the home releases of Blu-rays and DVDs. Sometimes right on top of the release. Sometimes a few weeks behind. When we're when it's two guys watching the same copy, it as a way of a. Uh, you know, push him back a bit. And sometimes I get these things like three days before release date. And I'm like, guys, this is not coming out right at and release. I don't know how to life. It's fun. And life is it throws fun. things in the way. It does. <laughs> but we have a lot of interesting things to talk about this week. My co-host is Aaron. Ooh, ooh, and yes, we do. This was actually one of the better sets I've gotten. Oh, nice. Okay, I'm glad uh, to hear you say barring that. Barring a couple of examples. <laughs> yeah. There's a few I was not crazy about, but there are a few that really surprised me at just how good they really well, were. And, and for the... For the ones that aren't great, even the ones that aren't great, I was like, you know, I, I can see who this would appeal to. I didn't have any that I was like, man, fuck this movie. And, and this episode will also feature, which I forgot to warn you about ahead of time, a special break where Johnny Neal will be on with me to talk about The Deuce Season 2, because he saw all of it and I wanted to talk to somebody else who was excited about it as I was. But go. before we get started, it's a little house cleaning, talk about our sponsor, Circle Brewery. They are a local brewery based out of Austin, Texas here. You can go visit them at their brew pub on Breaker Lane, where they serve all sorts of delicious stuff on tap, including quite a few seasonals but you can get their beers in the can and some of them and the bottle uh, all around Austin and even outside of Austin at your grocery stores at your uh, hell I've seen them at 7-Elevens now so you know I just finished their Envy Amber which was damn good and yeah. I'm about to get their tuxedo right now out of the fridge the tuxedo IPA is quite tasty if you're one of those people who thinks eh I don't normally like IPAs I think you should give the tuxedo a try. You might be surprised how much it changes your mind on that. It certainly did for me. But they have a lot of great beers. They are a wonderful sponsor. Please go out and get yourself a six-pack or a 12-pack or just all the beer from Circle Brewing and drink it and tell us tell us and tell them about how much you liked it. <laughs> I've been sitting here with my hands just, okay, just like, waiting come on, happen. come on, where's the moment? <laughs> also, thank thank you to our subscribers. Uh, if you don't know already, if you're new to oneofus.net and Digital Noise, you should know that we are a subscription-based podcast. There's four tiers of subscriptions at $2, $5, $10, and $25, and that is the only way this site can keep going because it's very expensive to maintain. And honestly, the, it's that weird thing. The more people we get that regularly listen to us, the more expensive it is to actually run the site and those numbers keep going up, but the subscriptions don't necessarily. So we need people to subscribe so we can keep doing stuff as it is. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the site. I've been slowly fixing things, changing things, moving things around. We've got a total site upgrade coming in the next few days where it will have a very different look. So it will now be more mobile friendly for your phone and all that costs me some money. So I'm just saying, please think about helping out because 
that's the way things get done. I'm on a here. big believer in the invisible amount of money where like, all right, I know if I pledge this, my wife won't notice it on the bank statements <laughs> and I will forget that I do it. So it doesn't even exist. You right. Know? It just, it's there. And see, you do that. You find something that you're like, that's like that. Like I can afford $5 a month without even thinking about it. It's never going to impact my actual income at all. So just say, you know what? Fuck it. I do like listening to one of us.net. Sign up for one of those and you are making a big difference. Just last note before we get started. All of our shows now have their own iTunes and Spotify feeds, including digital noise. So you can get on there. You can subscribe to those feeds. Uh, and doing that is great. Just subscribing to them, even if you tend to normally listen through one thing, screw it. Subscribe on Spotify as well or whatever else it is because it helps with our numbers. And it really helps if you get on there and leave us a five-star review. And, and even, a, you know, if you've got time, a written review telling people about why they should listen to us. We do appreciate it. But now that we're done with all that, with no further ado, let's get to the reviews. And we're going to start off with one of the films that's widely touted as one of the biggest bombs in American filmmaking history, but in the years since, certainly has been reevaluated to some level. And that is 1995's uh, post-apocalyptic uh, film, Waterworld, that was a huge hugely budgeted movie, way over budgeted movie, uh, at the time 172 to 175 million, which at the time was insane. Nobody was making movies that cost that much. Uh, that only ended up pulling two, 264 million in the box office totals, which is not <laughs> considered a success by any stretch of the imagination. And this is Kevin Costner, weirdly, like two films later, kind of remade it with that movie, The Postman. Which I, I also kind of like, but, yeah. but, Nowhere near as much. Like, like Waterworld is its own weird animal. It's a weird little movie. Um, it's distant future. The idea is the polar ice caps have completely melted. The sea uh, level has risen so far. There's almost no land left. And our hero, question mark, is, is only referred to as the Mariner, who's Kevin Costner, who has his own sort of boat with a lot of tricked out stuff on it, like sort of raggedy looking, but he's he's figured out stuff and he goes and, and like deep sea dives for for, for st- dirt. For what? For, for dirt and, and my favorite line, peeper, peeper. <laughs> and we find out the reason he's so good at that is because dude's got gills. Now, first off, just note here, Evolution doesn't actually work this way. <laughs> but, you know, that being said... You know, yeah, that is not the problem I have with this movie out of right. all the things that I could have issues with. Um, it starts with a pretty strong first act, I think, where I actually like this guy. I mean, he's kind of bitter and wants, doesn't trust anybody, but it's kind of a cool one-man performance. It, Kevin Costner does a great job in this movie. Like, his actual role and his character, for all that it is implausible from the point of view of science, is kind of interesting being this mutant in a world where it's he's designed for it, but everybody wants to basically kill him on sight for just existing. Right. They're freaked out by the idea of there being mutants like this. And he has to encounter this when he encounters – he goes to a floating uh, – Atoll, I guess yeah. they would call it. That's like a, a, a minor civilization of, of survivors there where he comes to trade. And uh, although that's one of the things that doesn't make any sense because he makes a big deal of trading for dirt. And then but, later we find out he can get all the dirt he wants. Well, so. And also, like, I've always wondered, do, does going from mud back to dirt really work that way? I imagine and, if you leave it out in the sun. I mean, it happens on the earth all the time. That's actually one of the problems I have with the movie is just – he goes to trade, and it's really cool watching them go through and find these rare 
pieces of junk that are highly valuable, like a rearview mirror. But this world really sucks. And they really push the fact that this world sucks. They push it so much that the entire time I'm watching this movie, when we visit the Atoll and as we learn who the villains are, every layer we peel back, I'm like, oh, like, humanity is done in the next 30 years, right? right. Yeah, which may be true anyway. No matter what. <laughs> just 30 years, everyone's dead. Right. Uh, so these people, they see the gills. They take him prisoner and the plans to, to return him to the big pile of goop they've got in there where they basically source for food, which is it's, anything it's organic they throw into it to rot and like turn back into like right. edible or usable stuff. Gross. And but all of this is interrupted by the attack of a, you know, I mean, like the base, essentially the bad guys in the road warrior, a bunch of crazy punked out survivors with jet skis led by Dennis Hopper, good name, the Deacon, who uh, are after this little girl with a map tattooed on her back uh, named Enola, who the rumor is the map is leads to dry the mythical dry land. Her mother, Jean Triplehorn, in the middle of all the chaos, realized nobody's going to save me. Not technically the mother. Not technically the mother, but the person acting is the yes. mother. Um, and releases, uh, saves Kevin Costner at the last minute uh, under the understanding you're going to get us out of here. And there's the three of them sort of trying to survive Dennis Hopper and his goons looking for them and then eventually having to go on a rescue mission to get the daughter. Okay. So all that being said, this movie, like I said, starts reasonable enough, although if a bit overlong, gets pretty silly in the middle act. Dennis Hopper is playing it. I mean, it's Dennis Hopper. Well, He's it, playing it so over the top. So I want to say this came out around the time that Mario Brothers came out. I don't know if that's true, but it feels like it because Dennis Hopper is just acting the fuck out of every scene he can possibly be in. Right. He's just, he's turned it up to 11 and it, I got to admit, I love Dennis Hopper when he goes full Nicolas Cage. But I'm not sure it works here, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it's different. It, it, it's... It is very different from the Kevin Costner movie. But, and that's true, because the Kevin Costner movie is this man in the sea just going against nature. He never talks. Yeah. It's quiet. It's kind it's of meditative. an environmental and, message. And, and I actually really like that part. Uh -huh. And then everything with the smokers is, yeah, it's the road warrior on water. And Dennis Hopper spends half the movie with a doll's eye with fake hair coming out of it, replacing his real eye. And like, which looks awful. It, by it's the way. a cartoon character. Oh, and completely. Like, both work, but they don't necessarily work together. So it, it is awkward whenever they transition. Like, I think Dennis Hopper's character could have worked really well in a crazier movie. If but the whole I, film had that yeah, same tone to if it. If it was just super goofy. If the, the lead character through. wasn't so taciturn and himself the, had more. Because the Mariner doesn't have much in the way of personality. He's, the, the problem I end up having with this movie, it's not the smokers. It's that middle act uh, where it's him and the two women on the boat bonding of sorts. Yeah. And so the one thing we haven't touched on, there's multiple different versions of the movie. No. Uh, well, we'll, one, get, we'll get to that with uh, the bonus we'll, features. Okay. Well, because... The version I watched added a lot more in that area. Oh, you watched one of the two forty minute uh, or I more the, longer ones. I, I, I watched the uh, the 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 Hercules cut or the the one that it's the TV edit. Well, like I said, all we'll, the violence cut back. We'll talk there. about that in just yeah. a second. But before we get to that, just finish up with the plot. I think the third Sorry. act is ridiculous and bad. The effects are terrible, and it's just so fucking goofy. The whole third act. There's a lot of like, how could they possibly moments in it. 
I just, and the very end is just like, come on, did you guys really think that this was going to get to a sequel at some point in the future? Because it's not ever. Um, there's a lot of familiar faces that pop up in this as well. Michael Jeter, uh, Jack Black has a small role in this. I thought that was him. Yeah. Uh, Kim Coates from uh, from uh, um, Sons of Anarchy. There's a lot of people in here you'll be like, oh, I've seen them in this TV show or whatever. But anyway, uh, Waterworld, it's still not a good movie, but it's nowhere near as bad as you may have heard. And it's certainly w- worth a watch. Although I would not personally, and I still did not, I only went, I was like, the original was two hours and 15 minutes. I am not sitting through the one of the other two versions that are included with this Arrow set. There's one at two hours and 56 minutes, which was the original U.S. broadcast television uh, version, uh, which has a few alternative scene- scenes, but also some stuff that's cut out of it from the original, as well as um, a much shortened introduction to the main character, and obviously the, a little less of the... Uh, you know, sexual innuendo, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Or grosser stuff. Well, uh, and then there's the Ulysses for TV. And then there's the Ulysses cut, which is two hours and 57 minutes, which doesn't cut anything from the original adds and adds all that extra uh, footage from TV as well as of apparently a few other bits that they yeah, found. So I saw the Ulysses cut and honestly, it's a better movie. They still like that middle act could cut a lot out, but right. they add a lot. They add a lot of world building, uh, just small, little tidbits and uh, the end of the movie they actually identify where dry land is Mm -hmm. like I don't want to spoil it but I don't think it's fine it's fine fine. it's Antarctica right it's Mount Everest oh it's Mount Everest and it's like it's reaffirms that oh yeah you're you're all gonna die in like 10-15 years you're just fucked yeah you know, humanity is gone. Unless the there's the a, a massive ice age coming, which would be the best like, thing that could happen. I legitimately enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know that I would ever go back and, like, I want to watch this cut of the movie or this cut of the movie. But, like, I I will probably watch the Ulysses cut if I watch this again. It was fun. Uh, and this is the Arrow edition, which went, really, they fell all over themselves trying to make this the ultimate edition of a film that very little pe- few people give a shit about. Um, but it is totally worth watching. I can't, I don't know if this is the one that I personally would have spent the money on buying, but the only previous Blu-ray edition of this kind of sucks. Uh, there's n- almost no extras. It's the the quality of the the print is bad and the sound this they really fixed this up to look brand new it's a three disc set that includes six collectors postcards a double sided fold out poster is anybody really going to hang up a poster of waterworld in their house <laughs> uh, and a limited edition sixty page uh, book featuring essays by various critics archival pictures and writing uh, there's also a reversible sleeve uh, which has both the original and newly commissioned artwork by the artist Paul Shipper and then there's a lot of bonus features an hour and 42-minute retrospective uh, look at Waterworld called Maelstrom, the Odyssey of uh, Waterworld, which goes into not just the making of it, but also that whole sort of like what happened with what went wrong? Why was it not a hit? What happened to make it go as over in budget as much as it did? All Examining all of those things. Which I got to admit, Waterworld is one of those movies where I'm really intrigued by that. That's probably it more, does have an interesting it's story. Probably more interesting than the movie itself. Yeah. Um, there's dances with waves. <sighs> you get it because <laughs> dances with wolves. Uh, a nine minute twenty second archival fe- uh, featurette documenting the shoot. Global warnings at twenty two minutes and twenty one seconds, uh, which is this critic Glenn Kenny who analyzes apocalyptically themed films and. 
and my money did a really terrible job of it. I watched this and I was like, you're skipping over almost all of the major films in this genre. Like he doesn't even really talk about the fucking road warrior. You're like, Oh, what? And he's just picking out all these super obscure movies. And I'm like, okay, man, go next. Uh, there's image galleries, original trailers. It's a solid set for a film that I'm questioned whether or not needed you know, to be this That's solid. what Arrow does. I swear to God, some of their releases, it's not that they think they'll make a profit on it. They're probably just like, you know, we feel like this version of the movie should exist. And so, therefore, we will bite the bullet and be the one to do it. I mean, nobody else is going to do it. So, yeah. might as well be Arrow. And God knows they do this for some movies that I love often. So, fuck it. All, all hats off to Arrow. Our next film is the, the second film. Originally, there was going to be three, and now it's just the two film in the sort of Death of Superman storyline. We previously, I think it was you and me who reviewed the previous one, right? Uh, which we liked quite a bit. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and it was fun because Death of the Superman, I actually read that comic when it came out. I mean, shit, who didn't? It was Death of Superman. But I fell off. Pretty much when Cyborg Superman got introduced. So this whole reign of the Superman story, I had no concept of where it goes, only that it ends up with 90s metal Superman at the end. I actually finally, because I did the same thing when I originally came out, and then about a year and a half ago or so, I went back and kind of just read the whole thing. It was like, wow, this gets really shitty after I've, the death. I've heard it's pretty terrible. And reign of the Superman... Isn't really that great of an interpretation of it either, to be honest. And and the original, I mean, when you're talking about, you're translating like I think like 900 pages worth of material into one hour and a half movie, like that's you know pushing pushing it a bit with with a lot of characters to explore. But indeed, many of which went on to do much more interesting things in the DC universe afterwards. The idea is. At the end of Death of Superman, no spoiler, that's the name of the, the, the movie, uh, <laughs> like he dies and there's a big deal about Lois Lane cradling his corpse in his, her arms, but he did it to defeat the, the, the villainous creature Doomsday, who was thoroughly defeated, at least until the next time he pops up in DC Comics. Uh, and again and again and, and again and again and again, of course. Uh, but weird things are happening as four different people who are have a Superman appearance are popping up claiming to be Superman to one degree or another, and all of which don't appear to actually be Superman. There's Superboy, which indeed went on to be one of the the ones with the most amount of legs, as even this character's even popped up on like uh, uh, oh, dude, he, he, on, he, on animated television. He's the main character in the Injustice. And he's right. Great. He's a really good the character. character uh, the character of Steel, which has had some, um, some, some interesting <laughs> runs himself. And an amazingly bad, enjoyable uh, Shaquille movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, Cyborg Superman, who is ended up being kind of one of the major Superman villains over the years, and in fact that storyline really? has been uh, has been being explored slowly uh, in uh, Supergirl, on the television show Supergirl. She's oh. he's a character on there. Um, obviously, they're doing things in a very different order. And then the Eradicator, which basically looks exactly like Superman, but with a weird, like those glasses that people who have light sensitivity wear, those yellow plastic glasses is what he looks he like. He looks like how someone in the 70s thought people in the future would dress if they were Superman. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and Lex Luthor holds this big press conference uh, announcing right off the bat uh, that Super Superboy is his own genetic creation from the DNA of Superman. If you read the comics, you know that he's actually a mix of... If, if Superman and Lex Luthor had a baby, it would be Superboy, apparently, Ew. which is really gross. Not them having sex. The idea that anyone would do that genetically in a lab is kind of gross. Yeah. Uh, um, 
But it's Lois, who's really the main character of this thing, trying to explore. So who are these people? And a lot of the super people fighting versus each other and then going, wait, is it possible that the real Superman somewhere isn't really dead? Spoiler, he's not really dead. Uh, and it's just the whole arc of that with trying to introduce all these new characters. And it's okay. It's just kind of messy and all over the place, I thought. I think I probably liked it more than you. I, I enjoyed this for the most part. I will say it has some pacing issues because about every 15 or 20 minutes, I would sit here and go, wait a minute. We haven't seen Cyborg Superman for a while. I want, like, what's he doing in all of this? And then, like, five minutes later, he would show up. So I feel like they needed to up their pacing by, like, 5% just to keep up with the audience. Sure. But... Otherwise, it goes into some interesting dark places that I thought was kind of cool, especially with Superboy and the whole cloning thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was really disappointed with the what the secret of the Eradicator is, right? And kind of where they ended up at the end, both in the design for let's be honest, Superman's not dead. Superman, Superman, he's never dead. Um, but the design for that character when he came back, I know that they were stuck with what was in the comics, but oh my god, it's terrible. Yeah. And watching him show up with a mullet is by definition bad. <laughs> it's just it, it's 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 emo like goth superman. I was kinda it's like terrible. here's your chance to fix that and go like their argument is like, Oh, well he's been in like a like a crash for a while, so his hair kept growing. It's like yeah, so who was cutting the front of it? <laughs> I was like, make him come out like full on hippie hair with like a giant beard. I would have been all in. Like, so th- that portion of it I wasn't into, but everything with Superboy and the cloning and Lex Luthor, I actually really enjoyed that part. It got just fucked up enough for me to be surprised by where they went with it. Okay. This feels to me like what most of this. Uh, continuity of DC movies are where I'm like, you know, I enjoyed that for the most part. There's some things that I really liked about it and some things that I didn't like about it. And it was, it's okay. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I just started to get bored about halfway through yeah. and I don't usually do that with these, but the cast is good, really good this time around with J- Jerry O'Connell, who's proven he's pretty good at doing Superman, who also voices Cyborg Superman here. Uh, Rebecca Romjin is Lois. Rain Wilson is Lex Luthor, who I thought actually did an excellent job as Lex. She did. Uh, Cameron Monaghan is Superboy. Cress Williams is Steel. Uh, Jason O'Mara is, is, of course, is Batman. Rosario Dawson is Wonder Woman. Uh, Nathan Fillion returns as Green Lantern because now he is the go-to guy for that voice, apparently. Uh, Tony Todd. Todd is Darkseed, and as well he should be. I mean, it's a decent voice cast. It's just, like I said, I thought I personally thought it was just okay. But there's a, for extras, there's a sneak peek at their next one, like there always is, which is Justice League versus the Fatal Five, which I was actually surprised to hear Bo was super excited for this, but I was like, eh. I, you know, this is the first time I am not at all excited, because it's supposed to be a return to kind of the Bruce Tim Justice League. Well, and- obviously the style of it looks like that, but... I don't know if they're actually sticking with that continuity or what, I don't but think they are. I have kind of been enjoying the continuity that they've stuck with, and I wish they would stick with it. I mean, to some extent, I don't know. I go back and forth. Bruce Tim has made a lot of missteps lately in the DC animated universe. Like uh, his, 
uh, version of the Killing Joke, obviously a lot of people had problems yeah. with. I've still never finished. Uh, the, there's, I, I think that the second half is much better than the first half, but that's well, me. You mean the Killing Joke part? Yeah. The actual part <laughs> where they just go do the comic instead of all the stuff with Batman fucking Batwoman on a roof. I was like, come on, stop that shit. Um, but Justice League vs. Fatal 5, obviously, it's it's a very Legion of Superheroes type story, which I normally like, but it also means them introducing tons and tons and tons of new characters, and that doesn't always work in an hour and a half. It, is it wrong that I kind of wish the DC animated universe would do, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, what the DC live action universe seems to be doing, which is make a bunch of weird ass movies on the B characters. Like I agree. Because every DC live action movie that gets announced, you're like, wait, what? I think you're, you're doing a movie about the Joker they and keep, just, the, but what? They keep dipping into the same wells, and it, it doesn't even matter at some point if they're good or not. It's just a little yeah, tiresome. I, I'm, I'm you're tired. Like, You've got so many characters. It's like, look through the rest of your... I mean, people have been begging you to do a Blue Beetle and, and, Blue uh, Beetle Booster, and Booster Gold movie. Yeah. Where I mean, they've been begging you for years to do that. Where is that? I, I am officially tired of DC's Holy Trinity. Yeah, me too. I don't want them anymore. Uh, there's a... Uh, 16 minute look at Lex Luthor, the greatest nemesis, which is, of course, talking heads from DC talking about why they like Lex Luthor. Uh, two older DC animated, uh, uh, episodes, Superman from the Superman the Animated Series and from Justice League Unlimited, and then some trailers for all the other shit DC's been putting out as, as, as they were. Uh, let's go on to the next one, which is the, one of the big surprises for me, uh, and not because I hadn't heard this was good. Uh, I'd heard it was quite good. But a lot of time, these little like foreign language indie films end up, I find that it's a bunch of critics raving about it. And you're like, wow, this is so dull. And I am not a witch. I did not find dull at all. Uh, I agree with you. But so this is one of two movies that have the exact same problem to me, which we'll get into once we get more into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but... So I Am Not a Wish is basically about a girl who, at the age of, like, eight or nine, is accused of being a witch, which I looked into it. This is a legit thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, the filmmaker went and to... I think Nambia, uh, I think. Yeah. So she is accused of being a witch, which basically means that some villagers don't like her, and they go to a cop and just say, she's a witch, arrest her. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what they do. And so... They put her in a shack, tie her up to a ribbon, and say, you have two choices. You can either live your life in this witch's camp with a bunch of women who are all witches, where you're tied to a giant spool of thread and can't leave it. Yeah. Or you can cut it and turn into a goat. Yeah. And use their own superstition against them. And she, of course, like any kid would do who believes that shit, decides to stay in the witch's camp. And... As the movie goes on, this semi, this definitely corrupt government official, but you never, I, I was never really sure what his actual position was. I mean, was. who knows? <laughs> but he basically uses her as a truth sayer to uh, find out who committed crimes. So, like, some guy had his dowry stolen, and he literally lines up all of the suspects and says, Who did All it? right, <laughs> who did it? And she points at someone, and they're just like, You asshole, I can't believe you robbed the dowry, without any hesitation. Yeah. With, of course, the government official getting a nice kickback yeah. from the dowry holder, which is why all this is, the movie argues, is all of this exists in the first place, which is a thing that happens in pretty much every culture ever that's existed in the world, a way for rich, powerful men to subjugate women and find ways 
ways to make money off them, which is the exactly what this movie is about. And, and that's like that's basically the movie. I mean, there's more to it. She she meets his wife, who is also was uh, was someone who was accused of a witch, and she goes through her life being used like this. And the movie is essentially about her ultimately trying to decide, is she going to live this life, or is she going to try to live for herself? Mm-hmm. The strength of the movie, which is also the problem I had with the movie, is it's very naturalistic. She, The director does an amazing job of shooting this in an interesting, very quiet, methodical way. It's very stylistic without ever being terribly flashy. Right. Um, but... The movie really didn't necessarily have a plot, per se. Stuff just kind of happens, because the main character is a very quiet girl. She has, like, four lines in the entire movie. Uh, and so it, it's just kind of observing this slice of life about what it's like to be in a culture where you are basically have every ounce of agency taken away from you. I, I don't know if I agree with you that there's no plot. I, I felt that it really did have a plot in this one because it's not really a slice of life if, like, there is a beginning, middle, and end to the storyline coming on that are very decisive. And, it does end. And she does have, a, a like, an arc that she goes through in regards to those events that are happening and how they are affecting her and make her change and make different decisions as it goes along. I, I, I guess for me she was just – so passive in the movie up mm-hmm. until the very end that it it felt like stuff just happened to her. It didn't feel like there was any narrative really until that happened. Well, it's, a, it's about her figuring out exactly what is happening here, basically, and being the one, you know, the kid who points out the emperor has no clothes. Being that character, it's we're watching all these things happen just like she is and figure her, you know, us putting together just like she is, what's the real story here? Obviously, it's not women with magical powers. Um, and watching her make a decision based on that information. And I found it actually very moving and fascinating. I especially love the visuals. The last shot of this thing had me almost like in tears. I was was crying. I I both, (laughs) I hated the ending for what happens, but I kind of loved how they did it. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Where I was like, man, I I kind of was like, screw you script, but (laughs) man, you did an amazing job at doing that. Uh, so there's only two extras in here. One is Mwansa the Great, which is a 23-minute short film, which is by the same director with a very similar tone and style and plot. Time Not the Witch, about a young boy and his two sisters who are coping with the death of their father. Uh, there's a brief interview with the director uh, done at Cannes. Um, and that's about it. Just some trailers from the film production company. But honestly, I think this is really solid and totally worth watching. You know, I, I think that this is for a very specific audience. But I will say I am legit excited for whatever this director does next. Agreed. Yeah, she has got such a unique voice. Uh, her visual style, I've never really seen anything like it. And I, I found yeah. her, like, fascinating. Yeah. Our uh, next movie is another little indie film called – or foreign language film called The Apparition. This is one that normally wouldn't have been, like, the sort of thing I would, like – I would – gravitate to. But I was interested in one particular aspect of the story quite a bit that made me just choose to to give this one a watch. Now, it says The Apparition. You guys are thinking, great, here's Chris with his fucking ghost story movies. No, this is not a ghost movie. In this case, it's talking about an apparition of the Virgin Mary. This journalist 
was is who's dealing with a hard time because his partner, who was an award-winning photographer as a war correspondent, the two of them together, has died recently in a wartime event. And a bombing, which, yeah. it, which it begins in the most abrupt, holy shit, shake you awake scenes. Right. The opening shot of this movie is just, boom, explosion. And he's in mourning. He's kind of in denial about it. He's dealing with having a, being asked to appear at remembrances to this guy who was much you know, admired. And he just doesn't know really where to go forward with his life at this point. And he gets a call from the Vatican saying, hey, I know this isn't the sort of thing you normally do, but you're a very respected journalist and we want an impartial uh, like person in here to sort of lead this investigation where what we do is when anyone claims they're having a religious miracle, we do investigate it, which is, you know, all the stuff in there about how the Vatican investigates things like this is true, which is the thing that interested me the most. The what do you do when someone says, hey, I see the Virgin Mary up there and everyone believes it and starts showing up in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds to go pay tribute? And of course, there people around selling t-shirts and coolers and and probably fitbits and all sorts of shit um <laughs> you get a lot of steps going up the hill to the virgin mary shrine back and he's at first disinterested but as he goes along and becomes more and more interested in the actual story of this young girl who is he is one of the few people along with this crew of people who are true believers in catholicism uh who are part of his crew to investigate and ask her a set series of questions, but as well with him allowed some like room to maneuver himself to, to do his own thing to some degree. And he takes that to a way farther degree than he's supposed to and starts really trying to figure it out like a procedural mystery of who is this girl really. And and they, they make it clear that she has a secret, right? Like from almost from the very get go, when she's introduced, we don't know what it is. We don't know if, if she's lying or telling the truth, but we know that there is something that she's hiding. And I mean, that alone sounds kind of interesting. Yeah. The problem is this movie moves ex- at a glacial pace. I mean, it's well shot, but it's nothing that's going to write, you're going to write home about or haven't seen before. I like the performance of the lead journalist in this, who I thought was quite good in it. Uh, I like the performance of the, our uh, Vincent Lindon. I like the performance of the young girl, Anna, played by Galatea Belugi, who I thought was, who had, is a remarkable looking young girl. She has just those haunting eyes that you're like, remind you that, that, uh, that, uh, National Geographic picture of the, and- Muslim girl, one of those you know? people who, like, you swear to God, you've seen her in a dozen things. She has been in just a few things, but not many. Uh, but she does have one of those faces. And I did, there's a, by the halfway point, I was actually kind of really into this. And then the third act just kind of peters out. Yeah, so I have very similar feelings to this than I do about I Am Not a Witch, which I was super into almost the entire movie. And then the last five minutes kind of killed it for me. Hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed the methodical pace that the movie had because it, it was clearly accurate. Mm. Like it felt like watching a documentary on investigating religious miracles, and like you said, that's super interesting. Watching how they get a panel of objective people together, watching them go through the interviews, watching yeah. what the, are the what are the questions that the, yeah. the Vatican has set up to ask in case of the situation? Because and, and, I was like, that's stuff I don't know. They even go into the people they're investigating react with very much hostility. Uh, it, it reminded me of what we're going through in America. It's Today. Like it, it was a really interesting story, and then you find out what happened, and like I went into this movie going like I 
I don't really care if the miracle did happen or if it didn't. I don't think like, it like, really does either. Like, like, whether it does or doesn't happen isn't important. But what they ultimately decide happened, it, it invalidates the entire film if you think about it for more than five seconds. You're just like, wait, but, but you've just nothing, none of this makes sense anymore. Right. So, none of it's important. So it now there's like a whole anymore. other investigation you could do. Yeah. That's like, ultimately it's about, Something else completely, although I'd say tonally that that's still there because a lot of this is about the friendship that that's that's actually building between the journalist and the young Which, girl. That part's really good. Yeah, it's just and it's about so empathy. unfortunate that it goes nowhere ultimately because of that. And so it just like I said, it just it feels like it's going somewhere. It feels like it's really ramping up, and then it does indeed just kind of go. Well, okay, here's the end. Yeah, and, and I felt kind of betrayed by the movie actually because <laughs> I was. If it had continued the way it did, if it had committed in any way to an interesting ending instead of what we got, this would have been one of those movies that, yes, it's a hard watch because of its length and its slowness, but it would have been super rewarding that, that I would have recommended to people. And as it is, like, I yeah, would- it's okay. I kind of want to say if you're, if you're into slow dramas or if you like the idea of a true procedural where that's what's interesting is following the procedure. I think it's most interesting that's to people it. maybe who are who are interested in the exploration of faith in these scenarios, which is a, a very interesting question. And I don't think the movie takes a stance at all about whether like this whether this sort of thing exists, whether God is real, any of that. It doesn't really care. No. That stuff is is not really the valid question because it realizes anybody watching this movie has already made up their mind about that stuff. Yeah. One way or the other. The question is more more of a sort of like an interesting idea. Like, so how does one explore these more complicated, like spiritual questions when you went with people who are believers? And I think that is a fascinating question worth asking. I just wish this had done it a little bit better. Agreed. But uh, there is a interview with the director uh, and there is a audition tape for Galatea Belugi, who, like I said, you'll guarantee you'll be seeing in other stuff. I can't wait. Yeah. She is great in this. Uh, but that's all that's there on the disc. Uh, next up is Dis, which sounds like it's going to be, I don't know. I don't know what it sounds like it's going to be. Not so, what, like uh, what we got. Uh, uh, honestly, it sounds like a uh, a rap battle movie, like, bodied. Like, every time I told the plot to, or not the plot, but just the title to, they were like, oh, Dis like you diss someone, right? Right, right. So it, it's my wife legitimately asked me if it was about rap battling. I was like, no, no, not it's, at all. It's like I can't remember what the language is because mo- a lot of this is in English, but it goes back and forth from different languages. But wherever it's, I'm blanking on where it's from. But I, I um, say this for that language, it means devil. Th- this is the fastest in my life <laughs> I've ever uttered the phrase "what the fuck." Yeah, watching a movie, it's. This is one of those movies for people who like their horror on the very extreme level and also on the very art house level at yeah, the same it, time. It's it, it's weird because most of the t- and by the way, I'm, I'm not really going into plot because it's not really about that. But like, well, I mean, we will talk about the plot. Yeah, it's one of those movies that, uh, in most cases, would have been horribly, brutally, grotesquely violent, and it's not. But it is still maybe one of the more disturbing things I've ever seen. It's still pretty grotesquely violent at points. Well, like, I'm thinking of, like, the last couple of movies we've seen where, like, you get someone cuts their throat and pulls their tongue out through the slash. Sure, sure. You know? It's not that. I'm giving Aaron it's, nightmares and doing this yeah, job. Yeah, it's... God damn it. 
but like I, I was surprised that it didn't go as a splatterhouse as I was expecting. That's what I went into this movie thinking it was. Okay, was a splatterhouse horror, and instead, it, it, it's kind of like you said, it's a really quiet. Really disturbing art house film. Yeah, that but that is super short, and it's, it's not it's even, an hour. Yeah, it's a, it's just an hour, just under an hour. It's this ex soldier played by legend, genre legend Bill Oberst Jr. Look him up; you've seen him in movies. Uh, is wandering through the forest. Uh, he finds this um, big old warehouse uh, and. Starts wandering through it, and there's weird spray paint and stuff everywhere, and he ends up in a situation, a serious situation. There's, like, a girl, a naked girl with a mask on he's following around, and weird shit starts happening. And before you know it, he is the prisoner of, I don't know what he is, the dis. The, de- the, the devil of the movie, which appears to be a guy with sort of a, like, that looks like he's dressed kind of like a... Uh, Oh god! What is the name of those 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 two movies with the guy who builds traps? The collector. So the collector. He kind of yeah. looks like the collector, um, who, as we've seen at the beginning of the movie, is like, and like I said, taking back from your not gory, one of the gory scenes I've seen in memory and disturbing of him like torturing and murdering this girl who's chained to a wall. And we're like, oh, that's going to happen to you now, dude. And I'm like, I'm not sure I'm up for this. But the film becomes it becomes clear at some point this movie's more about. Something else than it is about what it's about. You know, it's not text. It's all subtext. And I'll be honest, I have no fucking clue what he was trying to get. I read the back of the DVD box and that helped me a bit. Yeah. Like, so the problem I had with this movie is surprisingly not the gore. Because like I said, I've seen bloodier, but I have not seen more disturbing. Um, But the issue I had was there seemed to be two different movies we had. So... There's a location that the vast majority of the movie takes place in, which is like this old, abandoned, maybe factory, warehouse, I don't know. shelled out. And they shoot the entire thing with Steadicam, and it's fucking gorgeous. They shoot the hell out of it. And then the other movie is all this black and white flashback stuff, which is some of the worst acted, worst shot freshman's uh, film student level movie making I've ever seen. Yeah. And so, like, all the stuff in color in that location, I was into. And even even the horrible, horrible shit that happened, that was in that better location. It was shot really interesting. And so, like, there was something there. But then they kept cutting back to the flashbacks. And every time they did that, I was like, I am officially out. I just, this is the, the kind of movie, it's kind of like when we reviewed Brutal. I'm like, this is not the kind of horror movie I genuine generally like. I don't like horror movies unless they're horror comedies that push to the extreme with gore. Yeah. And horror comedies tend not to have extended torture rape sequences like this one does uh, or brutal. It's like, I don't really want to see that stuff. And it doesn't. But it, it does make a difference in my ultimate gauging. If I'm like, yeah, but you are. It's not like just the guinea pig movies. It's actually trying to do something you haven't seen before, and it, there's some visual stuff that is kind of fascinating, and some structure stuff that's kind of fascinating. I'm like, this direct writer-director, Adrian Corona, I agree. I would watch another movie by this guy. It just would be 
a little tentative going into it if it was labeled as horror. Again. Yeah, I'm not sure if it wasn't horror. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is just not normally the level of horror that I enjoy. But some people really do. And if you do like that, if you've got that strong of a stomach and you you want to see people pushing the limits, this is that kind of movie. Yeah. And I think for that, it does it not bad at all. But if you aren't... Yeah, you stay need away to from it. Just keep walking. Yeah, keep this walking. Will, in the first five minutes, break you in half. Uh, this has an introduction by the director. There is, which he filmed on with his own cell phone, like holding it up. You can literally see his arm holding it up. <laughs> like, come on, guys, you've got a little more effort in than that. There's a behind the scenes thing, an interview with actor Bill Oberst Jr., which is a really weird fucking setup for an interview. It's almost worth checking out a little bit of just because. I don't know. You just, it, it's odd. Um, there's a short film called Portrait by the director and then a still gallery and some trailers. I don't know. Whatever. I diss on diss is what I'm saying. I'm curious. So the whole thing is about mandrake roots, which were, was I the only one who spent the entire movie thinking about Harry Potter and like, maybe yes. this is like a weird fucked up side story in the Harry Potter verse. I mean, <laughs> I've been reading stuff about the mandrake root. Like, you know, decades before I ever read Harry Potter, because I love supernatural shit and all that and witchcraft stuff. So I've seen it pop up in a lot of things, but this is related to a myth of the Mandrake Root that is one I have never encountered from, like, I think it was like Bosnia or something like that. Um, and I'm like, okay, I'm not even sure what that has to do with anything else in the movie, but whatever. Uh, anyway, our next movie is Studio 54, The Documentary. Now, you may have seen the movie 54 with uh, Mike Myers and a lot of makeup and latex playing the lead uh, character from this, who is the, the guy who founded the craziest, most famous nightclub, arguably of all time, Studio 54, in New York in the 70s. Um, and I always thought, watch that movie, I'm like, it's interesting, but I think even in our original review, I was like, I wish they just had a documentary because not really liking the narrative film aspects of this, I just want to see the true story. Well, here you go. Here's the true story of this fucked up club that opened with these odd two entrepreneurs who were like, let's just see how far we can push this shit. Which was only open three years, they said. I don't even think it was three years. That blew me away. Yeah, I think it was like like it was like nine and a half months or something no, like it, that. It was definitely was it? a couple of years. Was it a couple of years? Okay. But um so there's a lot of thirty three months. Yeah, thirty three months. Steve Rubell was the main guy who who I, I believe is I guess is not with us anymore. Um uh, and then his partner, Schrager, is the guy who they talked to the most, who's still around and very open to being able to talk about this. And there's tons of footage from Studio fifty four of just every celebrity in the fucking world showing up and partying and doing coke and taking their clothes off and like having public sex and just doing i mean not necessarily all that stuff with the celebrities but there's lots of footage of the celebrities there and of other people doing all that stuff and this place like they weren't paying taxes they hadn't even gotten an alcohol license they had found a workaround to like get a catering license since they were only open on the weekends anyway that was my favorite it, it was a a one night only catering license that they would just keep back getting every single day instead of just getting an alcohol license these are two guys who just wanted to party and like and be the guys throwing the party and had and all rules and and consequences be damned that actually changed the history of new york city and the entire way that nightclubs are done like nobody before this was doing a thing where there would be door people would stand there and just choose arbitrarily who got to get in and who didn't like that was the thing that started with studio 54 them going you you're cool you can come in you 
go home, change yeah, your vest. I, I, that, I like, like that's like a cliche now, but that still happens in New York. I, I like the guy who uh, he the owner who is not with us anymore. Apparently, yeah, Steve they were Rowe. interviewing him, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm not going to lie, I wouldn't get in." Yeah, and he wouldn't either. But it's a fun documentary. I don't think it quite goes to the point of like, I was hoping it was going to get even deeper into like the specifics of the shit of who was doing what. So it's interesting. You mentioned that they were very open about it. But one of the things while I was watching this, which I mean, make no bones about it. It's an interesting documentary, Mm -hmm. especially if you don't really know much about it. It was very educational. I've never even seen the Studio 54 movie. I only know about it tertiarily. But watching this, it felt like there was more to the story that the 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 people they interviewed weren't willing to talk about. Were they like, oh, there almost certainly was. Like, like we're going to admit things to hear, but then they kept getting very evasive. No, this and got into the nitty gritty. There's no that question. Kind of bugged me. Where yeah. it was like, you're still hiding shit, man. I mean, and not only about the stuff you'd expect them to do, which would probably, which easily could lead to libel suits of all the famous people were there and shit they saw them get up to, you know, but yeah. you're like, I, I mean, how much you want to get sued here by saying yeah. that stuff, right? Um, well, but, I, but stuff that had to do with the running of the club. Like the main guy comes about. off as so like, I mean, he starts by launching with like, I got nothing to hide anymore. We've been through this. I've paid all my dues. Uh, I just want to tell the story as it is. And they keep catching him in like, in being yeah. like sort of lying by omission things. The, and that, that's like, the thing. Like, I, I really, quite frankly, I, I don't need the dirt on celebrities. Yeah. But I wanted that part of it to be there. I wanted them to go deeper in what was happening behind the scenes. And I I never really got a 100% clear picture. It felt more like people who were trying to dig in and got yay deep into it and never really got further instead of let's bear everything and talk about what we did and how we fucked up, which is what I wanted it to be, which is, I guess, on me. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, I think that's fully, I mean, this place is legendary for excess and we only get to see about so much of said or hear about so much of said excess. Uh, but it, it was a very important time for the gay community as well, which is one of the first clubs that really brought all these, like, like people of every stripe together in one well, place. They even talk about that, like how... Uh, the gay clubs were where you went, and this was when they were underground and still not technically illegal, but not really legal. Yeah. And this was kind of helped put them into the limelight, well, which this, is great. This openly merged gay culture and straight culture and yeah. one like, hey, everybody's welcome with n- no real issues, I, you know, in terms of like people at the club. Yeah. But like, <laughs> obviously, the law had a different uh, opinion of it later on. But I thought in the end, this was a little dry. It, it was not as good as I was hoping it would be, and I was kind of disappointed yeah. by that. I was uh, expecting I, more, I guess. I, I, this, I feel like this is cliche to say, but I wanted it to be harder hitting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there's only a trailer here, and I'm like, how do you guys not have tons and tons and tons of bonus footage here? But, you I know, do like, not it, understand. If you're someone like me who has basically next to no knowledge about Studio 54, this is a good primer I just wish there was something out there that really did it justice. Well, in keeping with the theme of this one, uh, our next movie is one that I'm, as I as started off the show by talking about, I'm actually not talking about with Aaron. I'm talking about with my buddy Johnny Neal, and that is HBO's season two of The Deuce, which is the story of Times Square at this exact period of time, more or less, when porn was coming up and pimps were going down. And season one was fucking amazing. Season two I'm is even better. to hear about season two. Season two is even better. So listen that and then Aaron and I will be right back with more movies.
So glad I could get Johnny Neal in here to talk with the, uh, with me about the deuce, because <laughs> nobody else I know is watching the show, and for fuck's sakes, it's David Chase. The guy doesn't make bad television shows. Well, because they're all afraid of it. They're all like, I like Times Square for the Disneyland stuff. You well, know, like, come on, man. You want to smell Times Square when you see it on TV. And I swear to God, the deuce, I watch the deuce and I can smell it. It's so well done. It's true. And, and uh, you know, I mean, this is the same guy who did The Wire, which obviously is very celebrated. Uh, uh, Tr- uh, Treme. Treme. About New yeah. Orleans post-Katrina, which totally is... I've never seen anything that so firmly puts you in what really feels like what New Orleans is actually like. Well, and and isn't necessarily going anywhere. Yeah. You know, it's like, whereas The Wire had a kind of a wagging its finger at all the different institutions, Treme is just like, well, this is how these institu- institutions work. Everything's right. bribery. Everybody's drunk all the time. You know, it was just very, uh, like... It didn't really even have a story. It they didn't were build. They, they were both more character development shows that kind of loosely had a plot. Yeah. It was like, okay, we might get back around to this or maybe we won't. Uh, whereas I will say, uh, Chase's, uh, The Deuce does, is a little, a little more structured, I feel like, even though it is its own thing entirely. Um, the f- simple fact that the first season moves after the first season, we're five years later in the second season. And from all reports, the third and final season, which was, by the way, always the plan, right, right. Uh, will probably be a similar amount of time later. I mean, this is the story of how Times Square went from, like, the sleaziest place in, in America. From drop-dead New York from Ford, you know. Yeah, to Disney. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if it's going to go quite into that degree, but I suspect will the third season deal a lot with the aggressive police cleanup of it. And you have so many good actors in this thing and uh, some really good actors playing two completely different roles. Well, you know, first let me comment on that, that right quick. Um, The wire always felt like this is the flair to tell you how bad society is getting. Mm -hmm. Everything is getting worse and worse and nothing we're doing works. And then uh, Treme was like, the big, bad, horrible thing had already happened. It was post-Katrina, rebuilding, reevaluating, burying the dead, and uh, but still looking forward. This is entirely looking back, mm-hmm. and it's pretty cool in that way. It's it's a, kind of a sweeping epic, the way they've broken it down into three acts. And there's something real nice about that duality that, uh, that James Franco plays twin brothers, and they barely even differentiate them. It's pretty funny how they they don't like... I mean, they'll both have a mustache, you know? It's like... (laughs) There's never, like, one that has a a big birthmark or something on his face to separate them. Different hairstyles, but they're not even wildly different. No. But they do... It's a very different performance. It is. It is. But you have to kind of stop for a second most of the time and go, okay, which one am I dealing with? Right. Like, he doesn't overdo it. He doesn't, you know, I'm the country mouse or anything like that. (laughs) And then Maggie Gyllenhaal also kind of plays two characters. Characters, you know, yeah. like, so there's something nice about that, but she's still all in one person. You and know, this is, this is, I feel like this is her season. Like <laughs> she, she was so fantastic. She owns this. And like the first season, she's a prostitute who refuses to have a pimp. Right, yeah. which was odd at the time, right. but was making dangerous, it dangerous, downright dangerous. Started getting involved in the beginnings of porn, you yeah. know, and the like, uh, and that turning into a actual saleable industry uh, in Times Square. And now in this season, she's like herself. She is 
turned into a director and has visions of making porn better. She's become an auteur. Yes. The, the, I mean, don't want to give it a, I guess it's spoiler okay, right? Uh, to some degree. To some degree. Let's not get towards the last couple episodes. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, let's just say that she had the best attitude of an artist ever. Money's, money comes and goes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's okay with, uh, like, I don't have to make a profit on this. I just have to do it the way I want to and do it. The porn part of it was kind of a subplot in the first season. Here, it's the big plot. Yeah. Like, as the ways in which everything is changing because of the porn industry. It's in become legitimate. It's, it's becoming more legitimized. Uh, the mob is starting to get more involved, but in a, this is a business we actually yeah. want to, they actually are legitimate, that business, are legitimate business that we can do that way. <laughs> right. Um, and we're seeing even the, this having an effect on the end of the sort of pimp business. Right. Because they're sort of like, well, why would anybody even need you anymore? Well, they've opened up all those massage parlors. Yeah, there's too. all the massage so, parlors. So the prostitutes have moved indoors, gotten right. them off the streets, which was all the city hall cared about was get them off the streets. Right. But even then, you know, it's still a criminal enterprise and, and shit's going to happen. Bad yeah. things are going to happen and people are going to compete. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, now we're going to have to shut it down completely. <laughs> and some of Good them, thing we got porn to replace right? it. Right. Well, and some of them are going into porn and, and, uh, even some, like a, a very funny story outlined, I think about one of the pimps who's like really first, like, I don't know about my woman being Larry. porn, Larry. And then he starts going, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> and then starts going like trying out for like black exploitation movies and stuff. I'm like, I kind of love this storyline. <laughs> and, and he kind of starts as, starts as a little bit of a stage mother, you know, mm-hmm. like he's off stage going, no, nah, that you could do better than that. You know, like <laughs> that's not what he would say. It's shit like that. And then pretty soon becomes a star. And, uh, it's funny how the power dynamics in that go too, because then his girl is like, you're not in the pimp game anymore. You know, and, right? you do realize that you have no interest in being a pimp, right? So like, does he, where one of his girls leaves him and he's just kind of like, eh. And <laughs> contrast that to, uh, Cece's reaction when, when, uh, when, oh my God, what is her name? I love her so much. When Emily Mead, Lori Madison, yeah. when Lori Madison leaves him and he just rapes her, just brutally, it's just horrifying, just brutally rapes her. And then the greatest comeuppance in the history of of the world. Yeah. You you murdered the shit out that motherfucker. <laughs> That's such a great law. <laughs> there are some sh- pretty shocking character deaths in this season that yeah. happen, but all of which are like, there's a point where ahead of time you're like, this person ain't going to be around for too much longer, I suspect. But then the sense of watching a narrative where you're like, you feel like their narrative line is wrapping up and you're like, I bet they're not going to live too much longer. Well, and even, even though you kind of have that vibe, instead of it being like you're watching the clock waiting for him to die, suddenly, literally the rug gets pulled out from under you. Just when you think they're finding the dead body of one person, you find out it's the dead body of another person and it's just heartbreaking. Right. It's like, Oh, she was doomed. Yeah. You like, yeah, there is a lot of like that sort of tragic character arcs in here where you're like, you just know early on, this yeah. is not going to work it's out. Well not going to work person out. Who deserves better. Yeah. You, you're choosing to go behind enemy lines <laughs> right now. It's not going to end well. And, it's weird. It's hard to talk about the show in a short period of time because there's so many goddamn characters in it. And you're never confused about who is who. Like no. when I came back after the first season, it had been like six months. 
I had not forgotten anything. The moment you see these characters, you remember who they are because yeah. they're all so distinctive and their storylines are so memorable. It's God, it's just written and directed so fucking well. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's just a beautifully done show. It's uh and James Franco, God, you just can't give enough credit to that guy. I swear to God, he's so good. Because he's he's like uh the audience surrogate and the audience surrogate's dumb brother. He's <laughs> <laughs> the guy who's kinda of like Asking the sensible questions and doing the having the dumbest possible reactions to situations at the same time. Yeah, he's both goofus and gallant, and both of them on the same path, and they don't even know it. I'm blanking on the name of the actress who plays his girlfriend in it, who who basically takes over one of the bars that he runs. Margarita yeah, Laviva. Laviva. Um, Abigail Abby Parker. But she is terrific in the season as well. I kind of like that they started getting into the punk era as well here mm-hmm. in the season, where like her bars kind of turned into sort of like a stand in for CBGBs or right, something. Right. And and he, he's like, James Franco's like, what is this shit? He's like, so <laughs> these people coming in? Like, it's, yeah, whatever. It's real funny, too, how whenever he complains about something, he really leads into being Brooklyn. You know, like, hey, like a normal conversation and when everything's fine, he's got, he's just talking a little bit of an accent. But whenever he's upset, it's just like, like whenever a, Texan suddenly turns into an angry redneck, you right. know, and you're like, where did that come from? It's like watching Donnie Briscoe turn from, like, <laughs> you know, a guy who graduated from college to, yo, forget about it. <laughs> um, my only complaint was the Chris Coy, Paul Hendrickson plot, the the gay restaurant, that just felt shoehorned through the whole thing. It, it felt a little bit to the, that degree of like, well, gay culture was a huge part of New York at this point, and clearly season three is going to be dealing yeah. with what yeah. happened, the, the the death of that culture, which was due largely to AIDS, of course, right. which devastated the population of New After York becoming hugely mainstream. Yes. I mean, I, that's the thing. Exactly. This is the beginning of it going mainstream. But it and feels like this season, it doesn't really know what to do with it. It I mean, just never fits in. It always like meanwhile, you know, then we cut a to totally him. different side story that only in the most tertiary way is connected to anything else that's going on. Yeah. Exactly. It's just kind of like, okay, it's, I get that it's important to discuss this during it, this. And I even like these actors. Uh huh. And, and it's important as a placeholder because we know we're going to get back to it. Because the first right. season was just kind of the people weren't going to be in the closet anymore. They didn't necessarily have anywhere to go. But they weren't going to be in the closet. Right. And then gay porn starts going mainstream. But even th- that didn't even, there could have been a whole lot more crossover in the film industry part of it, you know. But they just kind of felt like they dropped the ball with that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not to the point where it's annoying, but it's kind of like, okay, well, at least this won't take up very long of the plot. It always, yeah, it's always like, because it's not germane to the whole you know, rest of the story that's so well interwoven. Mm-hmm. It's as soon as you go to him, it's like, just get back to the other part. Not that I don't like you, but you're not telling me anything that's going anywhere. That's very, very true. But that's the only knock I have. And, and that's not even a real knock. That's just the, you know, if I had to be nitpicky, but uh, I really think it's a perfect show other than that. I, I tend to agree with you. There aren't a lot of bonus features on this, but uh, there's just a few sort of e- like sh- short documentary type things on on here, which has become more and more the norm with some of their bigger shows, strangely. Well, they with show a lot of that kind of stuff on the HBO On Demand. Right. So there's some of that, a lot of this you've already seen if you have that. Um, I mean, the only show that usually comes with us these days from HBO with a sizable amount of bonus features is Westworld. For some reason, they pack those fucking things with extras, but like the rest of their shows, not so much. Well, do they have 
have like the clips of the writers talking and breaking. well, see, I would love to see something that was more like a roundtable like that. Oh right? yeah, it's yeah. like oh yeah, they're actually sitting and discussing it, but you know, not really so much. Yeah, yeah, but sometimes just a little bit of insight as to like the thing with the pier. I, I had no idea what was going on there, and it was like, oh yeah, the pier. You know, the, when, <laughs> when you when you find out some of this stuff, like I thought I knew things. You know, right. and by the way, uh, the first time I went to New York was 1981, which is right like this was like 79 to 81, mm-hmm. and uh, and a season covers a couple of years. That's yeah. nice too. So I I've been when I was a kid. I mean, I was born in 1970, and we went to New York all the time, including like I nice. I saw Times Square pre Giuliani. Dozens nice. of times. Wow, that's great. <laughs> you know, I even, my, my uncle sent me down there with 50 bucks and said, hey, go get yourself something nice. <laughs> oh, that's so great. <laughs> when I turned like 16. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, you spent a lot of real time there. I've only passed through. Just it visited pretty, a couple it was pretty days. scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's something else. But and and it's captured very well in the show because things will come from out of left field, you know, just like an act of violence or or uh the the way the cop the the last episode with Ralph Macchio mm-hmm. and and how suddenly the biggest loser on the force becomes the biggest hero on the force. Right. <laughs> It's just like it's just ridiculous. It's like eh, it's fucking New York. What are you gonna do? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> New York stories. Uh, yeah. By the overall, Johnny Neal and I both give us this our highest recommendation. Highest recommendation, and I don't know why anybody wouldn't watch it when it was live. Agreed, man. You should. Third season, last season, plenty of time to get caught up. Uh, before that starts later this year, and I highly recommend it. It's not like these are 22-episode seasons. No, that's real nice, yeah, too. They're short. They're relatively short seasons, and, and you'll burn through them. Yeah. Well, there you go, Aaron. Now you know for sure you should watch the new season, too. I was going to say, no matter what Johnny Neal said, I'm just going to say he's wrong. Well, he's just, just just to be contentious. In this case, he's right. <laughs> so it's fine. We're both right. Me there and we Johnny go. Neal, there we go. both on it. You should watch the new season, too. Uh, the other thing that you should watch as well is this Criterion re-release of just a legendary 1967 film, In the Heat of the Night, by Norman Jewison. Now, you may be more familiar with this film by the a famous, the most famous line from it, which ended up being the name of the sequel, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, which I didn't realize was actually a line from this movie that, that Sidney Poitier... I, I've watched this movie, but it's been 15 years. Dude, I just so, re, This is me just re-watching it for the first time so since then. I've never seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen the opening to the TV show about yeah. a thousand times. That's it came on it, after whatever I was watching in, as a kid. In my head, I'm conflating and, the movie and the show because the movie starts, and I'm like, where's Carol O'Connor? <laughs> <laughs> he plays the Rod Steiger part in the show, TV, which TV show, which went on for quite some time and won a bunch of awards in its own right. But let's face it, Rod Steiger in this movie and Carol uh, O'Connor look a lot alike. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, Virgil Tibbs, that person in question, that's Sidney Poitier, who is... At his heyday, was like one of the greatest actors in the world. Oh my god! So uh, I watched this with my wife. So first of all, just flat out, this is my pick of the week. I love the shit out of this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But watching this with her, I I've never been so involved in a movie that came out in nineteen sixty seven. Like 
just with everything going on in our country today, every time anything racial happened, we were into it. Uh, there's even a scene where he slaps a guy, and I actually out loud went, oh, shit. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, that's yeah. a rich white guy slaps and you put it in. He hauls off and slaps him right back, and you're like, what? My wife you was go. in the other room. I paused it and went, honey, honey, come watch. You got to see this bit. And rewound it and played it again for her. <laughs> uh, so it's... It's a murder that takes place in a small town uh, in Mississippi, and the a police chief of what police force there is, which is right at the beginning, you're like, this is just a bunch of dumb fucking hicks, including the police chief. Oh, yeah. Who is Rod Expressly racist hicks. Um, are like, okay, well, go out and find us somebody. And so they're, uh, Warren Oates, as the deputy, goes out to the train station, sees Sidney Poitier all dressed up in a suit, sitting there waiting for a train and goes, or a bus, and says, well, that's got to be the guy. And, uh, cause he's a black guy and goes, and I don't know, at, at a train two station. In the morning. Yeah. And so he goes and brings him back. And of course it's not. And it turns out Sidney Poitier is, in fact, a police officer and a very respected detective, uh, back from, in, in, uh, at Philadelphia, a homicide detective. And, you know, Steiger has no clue how to run a murder investigation at all, nor does he really care. He just wants to saddle somebody with it so he can get past yeah. it. But everything keeps getting complicated as Poitier is about a billion times more, or, t- or Tibbs, I should say, is a billion times more intelligent than anybody in this entire fucking town. And is Steiger is basically railroaded into a position where he has no choice but to accept the help of Virgil Tibbs, who doesn't want to be there helping either to try and solve this crime. And so they deal with a variety of, shall we say, colorful characters who don't <laughs> like color uh, in this town. Uh, uh, it, and a lot of notable actors have appearances in here, but but one of the ones that really uh, I noticed the most was uh, Scott Wilson, who just died this year, uh, who people know best from The Walking Dead or In Cold Blood, but he plays kind of one of the first guys that they track down, like, oh, this guy did it, and put him in a jail cell, and Boy Day's like, are you guys morons? There's literally no way this guy could have done it. I mean, like, your junior Encyclopedia Brown reader could have figured this one out. And it's a fascinating movie that's not really about the crime, it's about, like you know, racism and this, the changing South. And like, it's just, there's so many sequences between Steiger and Poitier that are just, you cannot tear your eyes away from that are just like on fucking fire. (laughs) I I will say as much as this isn't about the crime, like the plot is the crime. Yeah. But that actually took me by surprise watching this movie because like I, I knew it was about race relations and I, the line that they call me, Mr. Tibbs, even though I've never seen Hey, that. call me Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> I've seen that line a thousand times. It's amazing. But I was really shocked by how much the murder investigation is like the entire plot. They're always going through that. There's never a scene where they're not discussing the investigation. Mm-hmm. It's just... But every bit of dialogue uh, about it is is it's in that is not of the as interested in what the that plot is as it is is trying to get out and explore that racism yeah. of the south uh although there are some genuinely interesting sort of like things with the plot as he's figuring out who did it and they chase down various alleys that are dead ends or or people who are wrongly accused watching the way that plays out is indeed really interesting i was legitimately into the murder mystery and i can imagine when this coming out when this came out it was super subversive just 
I can see a point in people expecting to see a murder mystery and then being blindsided by this is what it's like to be a successful black man in America in this era. I, I mean, five Academy Awards won for this, including Best Picture and man, Rod Steiger for Best Actor. Fucking deserved, man. <laughs> uh, and two amazing. sequels, not just They Call Me Mr. <laughs> Tibbs. There's a third sequel I didn't even know existed before I was reading this up called The Organization that uh, that apparently is not very good. But the TV series it was based on was really good. I, I'm not so I've never seen the TV series. This I'm probably going to track it down now. <laughs> it's got to be streaming out there somewhere, right? I really right? enjoyed this. I did, too. I think this is kind of a masterpiece of a film. And this is Criterion, which means they put out a solid release. This looks gorgeous. There's the original theatrical trailer here. There's a brand new interview, direct, uh, interview video interview with the director, Norman Jewison, who talks about his whole thing about encountering the book trying to figure out whether or not he could even make it into a film, uh, working with the cast and crew members, and generally to the production. just came out in 2018. Uh, a new video interview with actress Lee Grant, who talks about being blacklisted in Hollywood uh, and and how she contributed to In the Heat of the Night. Um, Sidney Poitier, this is an older video interview where he talks about being involved uh, with it originally uh, from 2006. Uh, there's Aram Gudsosian, which is uh, chair of the History Department of of the University of Memphis and the author of Sidney Poitier, man, actor, and icon, who talks about Sidney Poitier and his career. Uh, there's Turning Up the Heat, an older program which takes a look at the production history of it uh, with clips from a lot of people involved with it. There's Quincy Jones. Oh, yeah, the Quincy Jones soundtrack to this is amazing. Um, I could have sworn that was one of the things that actually won an Oscar. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, he talks about the making of the soundtrack for this. Um, there's an audio commentary with Norman Jewison, the cinema, cinematographer, Haxel... I'm sorry, Haskell Wexler and actors Rod Steiger and Lee Grant recorded in 2008. And then a, uh, a illustrated leaflet with an essay by a film critic. This is solid. This is also my pick of the week. This is one of those rare movies that's as close to perfect as I feel comfortable saying. Agreed. Our final film today is a, uh, finally, a film that came out this year, First Man, which is uh, nominated for Best Picture. I believe it's nominated for Best Picture, isn't it? I don't think it's it is, year? actually. Was it not? Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see here. Uh, two nominations, Best Supporting Actress and Best Original Score at the Golden Globes. Seven nominations at the, at the British Academy Award, uh, Film Awards, and also received Oscar nominations for Best Sound Mixing, Best Sound Editing, Best Production Design, and Best Visual Effects. Although I really feel like it should have gotten a Best Cinematography. Uh, I agree. Which completely. I think is the strongest thing so in this whole film. But this is the story of, of, uh, Neil Armstrong based on the book First Man, The Life of Neil A. Armstrong by James Hansen, and this is directed by Damien Chazelle, who is just generally a, you know, has a, a win an Oscar written all over him, having previously directed Whiplash and La La Land, or well, I should it, say almost win an Oscar for La La Land. It, it was <laughs> interesting watching this movie, because the only thing I knew about it was the right-wing fervor that came about when it when it was coming out. Oh, the, the stupid argument, like, they didn't show the, him planting the flag on which, the moon. I mean, they don't. But you do see but, the flag on the moon. Yeah. So this is the second movie of this cycle that I'm going to call naturalistic. Mm -hmm. uh, this and I Am Not a Witch. The, the movie shot a lot with handheld cameras. It uh, was very much interested in the minutia of space travel. Mm -hmm. uh, so much so that this is the first time in my life that I've seen a movie where I fully grasp like how utterly gobsmackingly terrifying space really is because uh, they do this really interesting thing where anytime they're in space, you really don't 
ever see an external shot, mm-hmm. except for maybe once at the the moon landing itself. It's always the astronaut's point of view. So like you're you're in this super confined space that I don't even know how they got a camera in there, and you're looking out a a little viewport that shows like maybe ten percent of the uh, screen that you're looking at, watching stars just spinning past like right. nobody's business, and it's just. I don't know how they could do that and survive. You could actually see the screws that are holding the spaceship together. Well, the movie makes such a big deal about the fact nobody had ever done this before. Going to the moon, are you crazy? And there had already been accidents. And, and like it shows one of the accidents right before this, the crew that was supposed to be the crew to yep. go to the moon, all dying while still on the Earth, explode into flame. I mean, this was the most dangerous thing you could do. And it really emphasizes that these guys were taking their lives into their hands, were well aware that they were taking their lives into their hands, and the impact that that had on them as people, and which I think is the core real thing the movie's trying to get across, the impact it's trying to have on them as people, that aspect of it, and on their families, which, of course, Ryan Gosling plays Neil Armstrong, but also given equal of note here is Claire Foy uh, playing his wife, who is, is certainly a very strong presence and gives an incredibly strong performance in the film. Significantly better than her other movie that came out this year. What was the other one? Uh, Girl in the Spider's Web. Oh, well, yeah, that was not very good. But like, and so the, the only thing that kept this movie from really topping out in the heat of the night was, and granted, this may be real, and I just don't know enough about Neil Armstrong, but Ryan Gosling is so tamped down in this movie, it almost feels like he's a character, his character from Drive. Like, he is very much a man who is absolutely, in every aspect of his life, defined by loss. Mm -hmm. And, And that drives everything. And while, like, Ultimately, that give it, they give a great emotional payoff. Like, oh my god, the way they pay that off at the very end of the movie, just I was weeping, especially because I have a brand new daughter, and I'm not. It's the first ten minutes of the movie. Like, it's his daughter who passes away in the very beginning that drives right. everything. So, like, this movie fucked me up emotionally, but I kept wanting him to. I guess, be more of a character, not just be withdrawn in every aspect and every scene. I mean, this is, it's a very taciturn character, which is, you know, no brainer when we're talking about a Ryan Gosling performance. That's his whole thing (laughs) is being very taciturn. But I mean, to all reports, yeah, this is exactly, I mean, is that Neil Neil Armstrong was a very like controlled person. He was very like, like he kept it all inside right. type of guy. And well, then it's just, uh, yeah. it's real. So there you go. I, I've I, heard I that, take it back. I've heard that in general, it's considered to be a pretty damn close, like to, to what Neil Armstrong was actually like. I don't know. Um, but there's a lot of great performances in here. A lot of great actors. Jason Clark plus plays Ed White, who is the first American to walk in space. Uh, Kyle Chandler is Deke Slayton, one of the original Mercury seven astronauts. Corey Stoll is Buzz Aldrin, who was the, the poor bastard. That was the second man to walk like, on the moon. Corey Stoll. I, I really respect him as an actor. I, I love the fact that even though he can grow hair, he is Chooses more famous as to. a ball man, yeah. but oh my god, he is like the best actor working today at a not bad guy prick. 
Yeah. Like, you're not an asshole. You're just kind of a dick. Well, I mean, <laughs> he's still not going to top himself as Ernest Hemingway. So yeah, there you go. Uh, that was so good. Uh, Pablo Schreider, Schreiber is Jim Lavelle, who was a Gemini astronaut. Uh, Christopher Abbott is David Scott, who flew in the Gemini 8 mission. Patrick Fugit as Elliot C., who was a member of NASA astronaut group 2. Lucas Haas, Michael Collins, the, the command mo- module pilot for Apollo 11. Uh, Shea Wiggum as Gus Grissom, one of the original Mercury 7 uh, astronauts. Uh, I mean, this list just goes on, quite frankly, on and on and on. Ethan, Ethan Embry, who is slowly making his way back into the limelight as well deservedly he should, because he's one of those great actors that sadly nobody would cast for a while. And thanks to horror, is slowly <laughs> working his way back into respect. Siren Hines is in this. Uh, 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 Chris Swanberg. I mean, this is a great cast, but but I think it's really. It's going to be, it is, I know talking to some people, it's just too long and meditative for a lot of people. Well, With 141 right. minutes. It's a long, quiet, calm movie. Yeah. But you know what it does that I think it should be called out for the most is it manages to in no way be jingoistic, overly rah-rah-sis-boom-ba, and at the same time has makes me more proud to be an American than any other movie I've seen. Like, this movie exemplifies what true patriotism is to me. It blew me away how much I was like, fuck yeah, America, at the end of this movie. <laughs> Even though at no point do they do it's that not in the movie. It's it doesn't not need to that be. kind of movie. It would, be, it would feel, it would feel triacly and cloying it, if they had. Instead, it, 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 it feels like an authentic pride instead of a false patriotism. It feels like this is what real patriotism is. Yeah. Is, yeah, we did great things. We've yeah. done. Remember when we used to do great like things? To the moon. <laughs> and, and now we elect a reality star as yes. our president. Uh, there's two deleted, short deleted scenes. There is uh, a bunch of short, like under five minute or so EPKs on various different aspects of everything here. Like, like you expect with a big production, but you, you want that to some of this stuff. I mean, it's, it's. I would have preferred, as I always say with big historical things like this, a straight-up long documentary on the actual story of what happened in real life. That's I always agree. what I want with well, this stuff. Give me that a rarely is there. documentary about the moon landing. Yeah, or like it, I'm sure one already exists. Fucking pay for the rights oh, to shit. it and I, put it on I think, here. I think HBO has like the like that whole docu series. Well, they're not going to put the entire from the Earth to the Moon Shh. on here. <laughs> Shut up! They're going to do it. Uh, yeah. And there's an audio commentary with the director, the screenwriter, and the editor. Uh, this is still top-notch stuff, I think, but be prepared. Like I said, it's long, it's slow-moving, but it's absolutely gorgeous, and it really affected me. Terrifying. Yeah. I mean, the idea that this... I would have been like, fuck that. Someone else can go to the moon. I'll just stay home and watch it oh, on God, well, like, There's a scene halfway through the movie where she literally... Uh, his wife goes up to Neil Armstrong and says, look, y- you need to go prepare your children for the fact that you're not coming back. Right. And it's like, <laughs> like, like you're, just holy shit. It's entirely unlikely that you're going to survive, which he was aware of. But it was one of those things that it was really being played as a... I mean, to the suits, this was deeply important because if we didn't do it, the Soviets were going to do it. They had already beaten us to every other milestone in space. And at this point, this wasn't something that anyone argued was a thing that we could let happen. It was like, no, we have to do this first American exceptionalism and all that. And people were into that shit. Uh, And B, this was just... I mean, this was the forefront of science. This was the most, this was the first new explorer. You know, that's fascinating. Well, as he said, it was all about failing on Earth so they didn't fail in space. Very true. All right. Well, that's it with uh, for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me. I'll be back in 
probably just a few days to a week with another Digital Noise with John Golson. We've got a lot of titles to talk on as well. Please feel free to check out our landing page where you can see all the previous Digital Noises and all the movies we talked about. You can check things out that way. I am slowly assembling a complete alphabetical list for the site with links for every movie we've ever talked or TV show we've ever talked about. <laughs> but that's going to take a while. I'm not even, I, I think I'm just barely into the bees right now. That's how, and I've worked on it for a week. You have fun with that. Yeah, it's going to take a while. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, yeah, let us know what you think.